This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 9 of Detect This here on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and unfortunately my fellow detective Charlie Nash could not be here this week. He is away in Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Festival. Uh, watching a lot of cool movies. He will be back next week, however, because this is not the final episode of Detect This. True Detective may have ended, but we have not just yet. We are going to be back for a wrap-up episode next week with some pretty cool guests to discuss the first season as a whole, so be sure to tune into that. But uh, we've got a special guest filling in for Charlie today. He is the TV channel editor over at CraveOnline.com, where he writes about a lot of different shows, including True Detective. He also hosts the Idiot Box television podcast. Blair Marnell, are you ready to detect this? I'm ready. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Uh, just to, just give yourself a little plug. Why don't you tell our listeners everything that you've been writing about lately over at Crave Online? Because you cover quite a few shows over there. Oh, yeah. Well, I cover all the popular genre favorites, including Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, and of course, True Detective. Um, and I'll be covering... A couple other new shows coming up soon. I haven't quite, I haven't quite decided if I'm going to pick up the new HBO, rather the Showtime series. It's uh, so called Penny Dreadful. I haven't heard much about that. What's that about exactly? Uh, well, it's the writer and it's the writer and the director of Skyfall teaming up for a Victorian era horror series with Dracula, uh, Frankenstein's monster, um, Dorian Gray, and a couple others. Uh, we'll see if it's any good. We'll see. You, you sold me there with uh, you, so it's Sam Mendes. Yeah, Sam Mendes, John Logan. Sam Mendes doing Dracula, Frankenstein, those monsters. That sounds pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, as always, our listeners can email us at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Before we get started, I just want to quickly mention uh, a few more honorary members that we have to induct onto the Detect This team. All you have to do to become an honorary member is leave us a positive iTunes review. So, uh, L. Boogie, Brian in Japan, Ed S., Adam Graham 79, Yoda Teacher, Tegums, Matbug 62, and Bobby Carr 88. Thank you so much for your positive reviews and your continued support of the show. We love you. We appreciate you. It's nice to know that there are other stars shining out there in the void. We, we really uh, appreciate all your support of the show. Charlie and I couldn't be uh, more excited about all the support and love that the show has gotten uh, over the past couple months. Uh, I'm going to make one more small plug before we get started. If you have enjoyed Detect This and you feel like kicking a few bucks our way, please go to filmgeekradio.com and click the support tab. You can either donate to us directly or visit some of our partners, including Amazon. We will get a small percentage of whatever you buy there. So you can go ahead and purchase season one of True Detective on Blu-ray, and we will get a cut from that. And uh, also, Charlie and I are hoping that we'll be able to do another podcast this summer, because he's in college and I teach high school. We're both going to be off this summer and our schedules will be a little bit more open, so we'd like to cover another show. So if you have any suggestions or preferences for cool shows that are coming out this summer that you'd like us to potentially podcast about, let us know. Email us or call us or message us on Twitter and we will certainly uh, consider it. But uh, let's dive into the season finale of True Detective. Uh, This week we're going to be discussing episode 8. The episode is titled Form and Void. And as always, it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Kerry Fukunaga. So Blair, why don't you go ahead and remind our listeners what happened in the highly anticipated season finale. Hart and Cole tracked down Errol Childress, the groundskeeper who had been abducting and killing children for over two decades. The confrontation leads them through the creepy underground passageways of a pre-Civil War fort, otherwise known as Carcosa, the site for ritualistic child sacrifice. Errol is finally killed, but not before he stabs Cole, who nearly bleeds to death. In the final scenes, Hart breaks down in front of his family, and Cole claims to have had a powerful spiritual experience that has left him open to optimism. All right, Blair, I've been following your reviews over at Crave Online, and you seem to have really, really liked this finale. I believe you rated it a 9.5 out of 10. I did. So why don't you go ahead and explain why you felt it was such a satisfying finale? 
Oh, I thought it went out of its way to be emotionally satisfying for the characters. I mean, the the deal with Earl is over before the episode, long before the episode is finished. I think they have 20 minutes to wrap up the uh, Cole and uh, Hart experience, and they do so. I mean, they give uh, Cole one really, really last heart-wrenching scene, and even Hart has some emotional closure when he briefly gets his family back my theory was that he, he knows it won't last and that he, he had pushed them away himself and that's why he breaks down in that scene yeah I thought that that was a really really satisfying moment you have both of these characters kind of taking off their masks so to speak since that's been kind of the running theme throughout these past couple episodes and even at one point I believe Errol while he's being chased through Carcosa says something to the effect of you know take off your mask he says it while he's stabbing Cole oh right yes yes and I, I love how the the show ends with Hart who has up until now been kind of this surly pretty unlikable guy who who's you know trying to be a real man's man finally just breaking down letting his family see how hurt and and damaged he is after all of this and then you finally get a little a a rare moment of optimism from cole who seems to have really kind of turned around well there was another thing about that final scene between hart and cole i felt like that was like one of the first times they've really actually been friends because when cole's breaking down and hart's comforting him there's nothing asshole about it there i mean there's nothing false about the concern that hard is showing for him there They're, they seem to have really be, actually become friends now after not really liking each other even during the seven years they were partners yeah yeah this is a, a really actually it, it's a cool bromance uh, it's, it, this, this whole season has sort of just been about these two broken people who couldn't be more dissimilar kind of uh, finding each other and realizing that in a, in a completely platonic way they're sort of meant for each other and I really like how, by the end of the season, as you say, they are genuinely friends. And, and you can tell that there's still some tension between them, that they still get on each other's nerves, but they know that they can count on each other. And at, by this point, by the end of this episode, they have each saved each other's lives. So I thought that, that that was really, really satisfying. I also like how it didn't end with one guy saving someone else. They both do end up saving each other. At one point, Marty shoots uh, Errol just as he's about to kill Cole, and then Cole shoots him right as he's about to kill Marty. So I really liked the symmetry in, in that final confrontation. Well, getting back to the idea of their friendship, there, there's still enough tension to the point where they can flick each other off or they're in the hospital, right? Uh, which was very funny. Uh, but also, when the, they first get him outside, Cole's talking about, rather, Hart is telling Cole about where he's going to stay when he gets out, and he's like, I'll work it out. He's like, well, it's already been worked out. Yeah, yeah, they're going to be best friends now. They're going to be roommates, and uh, I can't wait until maybe season two we'll get a little cameo from them where they're just living it up. Well, there actually was a brief time in this season when they were roommates, which was actually a very funny Right side to their story. Do you think Cole is gonna still have his little his little eyeball sized mirror <laughs> with him? <laughs> Maybe he doesn't need it anymore. I don't know. I do. I do. Th- I I actually called at the beginning of the season that that Cole would take the fall for these murders, and that that prediction turned out to be wrong uh, because he was talking on and on about how he was trying to understand how Jesus could give himself up in the Garden of Gethsemane to be crucified and tortured by the Romans. And I thought that that was foreshadowing Cole's eventual fate in this series. Right, right. I actually went into it thinking that Cole was going to die as well. And if not Cole, I certainly thought, well, someone is going to die. And there was a moment in that final confrontation where I actually thought, okay, Cole's been stabbed. Uh, Errol is on top of Marty about to kill him. I kind of thought, oh, no, maybe this is actually going to go a really, really dark place. And they're both going to die. You know what? And even darker, they both die, and our two detectives who had been interrogating them from the start still put everything on Cole. Yes, yes. I, I was. Th- there was a moment where I thought, oh man, this show is about to go super dark. And then they both end up surviving, which I never would have predicted. I did not think that the show would be able to pull something like that off. It seemed far too cynical. It seemed far too twisted. And yet when it happened... 
once I kind of was able to suspend my disbelief and think, okay, I guess Cole could survive that massive wound to the gut that he received. Once I was able to get over that, I, I, I thought that they handled it really well and I was able to completely buy it. It's, it actually flowed organically from what the show has been building on. I actually thought he was done when, the, when he got him in the gut that deeply. That was like, yeah, that looks like a fatal wound. Yeah, yeah. And then when he pulls it out, I was just like, okay, you're about to bleed to death now. That's it for Cole. So do you feel like we were cheated a little bit by him surviving? I don't feel cheated too much because, again, it gave us 20 more great minutes of, of those two characters together. So I don't feel cheated too much. I do feel that the scenes in Carcosa, which were amazingly tense yes and ripping and yeah i really like that even though as some other commentators have put it it's very cbs drama oh i thought that it it worked so well i i mean shout out to whoever found that location because just everything with the, the fort and at one point you know as cole's tracking him he's outside in this courtyard with all these passageways and it really really does feel like this intricate elaborate maze and i just thought it was it was perfect uh you've got all the suspense building from him not being able to find errol and you've got errol still talking to him the entire time and you're not sure okay is errol actually just right around the corner whispering or is cole imagining this is he hallucinating these things that errol is seeing and then just that whole thematic idea of mazes and labyrinths and just kind of navigating the heart of man and, and you know, and, and coming to grips with your own potential for evil. I thought that the, the location just was absolutely pitch perfect and really just brought everything together in a, in a really satisfying way. You know, I think this is the first episode since the second episode to bring back Cole's uh, hallucinations when he sees what, what I guess is the giant apocalyptic wormhole of doom when he enters the main chamber at Carcosa. Yeah, what did you make of that? What exactly was he seeing? Well, pretty much what I said. <laughs> Just a wormhole? <laughs> I mean, I, I, was trying to, I was trying to figure out, is that connected to anything? Is that supposed to be like time folding in on itself? What exactly is, why is he seeing that image right now? Well, one of the theories behind the King in Yellow is that the play that drives men mad is actually connected to one of the old gods that um, Lovecraft loved so much. Uh, so that, in terms of uh, Cole's mind playing tricks on him, it was basically taking the mythology of the Yellow King to its logical end. He had reached Carcosa, so his mind gave him something to see once he got there. That's a good point. That's a good point. Now, actually, I kind of would have liked it even if the episode had been a little bit ambiguous about whether that, what he saw was real. There is no ambiguity about it. We know it's one of his hallucinations. But I, I like the idea that in this world that there could have been something like that creeping into it because when the creators of the show made it so real, they also left it open to the to uh, the idea that anything supernaturally tinged would have been completely frightening in that context. Right. There were We actually got a lot of emails from people theorizing that there was going to be some sort of supernatural entity that revealed itself at the end, that maybe the Yellow King was an actual demon or, or something that was going to appear. And I thought that that was a really, really cool idea, but I believe Pizzolatto has been saying in interviews for a while that the show wasn't going to go that route. So were you a little bit disappointed that, that it didn't really embrace the supernatural? I'll say this, it taught me something about using supernatural elements in a, a story like this, and that they made this world so real that, that it would have been a very effective supernatural tale if they had gone in that direction, and that's something that I'm going to consider for the future, because that that was like a very strong story choice. A lot of horror films, or even horror stories, don't feel like a reality that you and I live in. This did. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those rare situations where I think if they had gone supernatural... I think it could have worked. Um, at the same time, though, I think I might have felt a little bit manipulated if they had just kind of shoved that in in the final episode. Well, I'll tell you, one of the most enjoyable things about True Detective was the way the mythology exploded online about midway through the season once people figured out that the King in Yellow was an actual work that existed. Yeah, yeah, and... 
I mean, this show really took on a life of its own online, and you had people watching each episode over and over again, taking screen captures, pointing out details in the background, every little visual motif that kept cropping up, formulating theories. I think that that is really, really cool. I'm not sure Nick Pizzolatto ever anticipated that happening. And I, I actually kind of like, though, that the finale kind of took a more emotionally satisfying and, and, and simplistic conclusion. Do you know why people posted so many theories about True Detective Online? Why? Because they want to solve it. They want to be the ones who figured it all out first. Well, right. I like how this is a detective show that, from the very beginning, fully acknowledges, okay, not everything can be solved either in stories or in life. And we can just try to do the best we can. And I love how this finale really, really hammered home that idea of storytelling in general. When Cole says, you know, it's all one big story. And here we are, the audience, watching television. We are the gods, so to speak, able to see this entire timeline and I think that Pizzolatto did a fantastic job of making the themes of his show connect to just re- life in general and life, uh, re- real life. Um, and I think that that's something that very, very few TV shows have been able to do and very few movies. It's, it's just the rare artist, I think, that is able to inject real-life concerns into a fictional work and have them kind of exist symbiotically. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, also, when you buy the Blu-ray eventually, you can experience time as, as a circle, much in the way Cole so dreaded. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> yeah, you, you can watch his life over and over again. <laughs> I wonder if there's going to be any sort of special feature on the Blu-ray that actually maybe uh, re-edits certain sequences or plays with the timeline. In, in certain ways. It'll, that'll be interesting uh, to see. You know, technically, <laughs> you could do a chronological cut of True Detective, but it wouldn't be as interesting as it was in those early episodes when you see what's happening in the past, and then you see the way Marty and, and uh, Rust kind of come up with their own bullshit example of what was really going on, even though they're lying. Yeah, I, I think it's really cool how, at the end of the day, True Detective is actually a very simple story. I mean, that final sequence basically hammers at home is this is the oldest story that has ever been told it's it's good versus evil it's light versus dark we're just repeating the same thing that everyone else has been repeating for millennia and yet the way that true detective was told is what distinguishes it from so many other stories the fact that it's nonlinear, the fact that it's so visually gorgeous the fact that there are all of these literary references and it is like its own maze to a certain extent that's what sets it apart and it really just kind of reinforced in my mind that idea that you know it's not so much what the story is you're telling that's important it's how you tell it as well and what your ultimate goal is with with how you tell it well they also um, nick how do you pronounce his last name Pizzolatto, I believe. Pizzolatto seems to have a really incredible gift for dialogue because what came out of these characters' mouths was always very interesting. And, of course, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey gave transcendent performances. I, I really believe come Emmy time in September, both of them are going to walk home with awards. I just hope they get honored in the main category for drama as opposed to get, being relegated to miniseries. Yeah, now, is American Horror Story considered a main drama, or is that considered a miniseries? Um, technically, Fox could have put it in for, for series, but they thought that their Emmy chances would be better if they put it in with miniseries. And technically, it is an anthology miniseries, much in the way The True Detective is going to be. But it hasn't really had a lot of success in that category, as, it, as I'm sure they would have hoped. Right, right. Okay, so they could do it either way, is what you're saying? I think potentially they could. Eight episodes is not a very long season of television, but I think Idris Elba got one for uh, uh, Luthor, didn't he? I think so. I think so. Yeah, and I I know a lot of networks now are kind of experimenting with with different lengths for their seasons. I know a lot of shows have just started doing like six or eight episodes for their first season and then maybe expanding from there if it's successful. I mean, Looking, the new HBO series, only had 
eight episodes, and I'm assuming that if that gets nominated for anything, it'll be for for drama and not miniseries. No, that'll probably be. It's more of a comedy, isn't it? I have no. I don't know. It's a dramedy. That's that's probably going to be a comedy series nomination because that's one of those not really funny comedies like Nurse Jackie, which is more serious, <laughs> right? More serious than funny. And uh, that's not an anthology because that cast is probably going to come back next year as those characters. So you can't make the argument that that's a miniseries because they're they're all going to be back in that show. Well, right, but it was just in terms of season length. I'm not sure how much that plays into the category that something will get nominated for. Well, I imagine that, you know, Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch will be nominated for Sherlock season three in, in the miniseries category because that's a very small number of episodes of three and they're, they're right. special event when they're able to do a season of Sherlock. Right, and that's the kind of thing where each episode is its own story. You know, Sherlock, those episodes are what, an hour and a half? They're like th- their own little movies? Yeah, 75 minutes. It's somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. So I can see why that would get miniseries. But True Detective, I agree, fully deserves to be nominated alongside all the other dramas. Now, the downside of that is it's going to go up, if they do in that direction, it's going to go up against Breaking Bad's main tr- main uh, duo of Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul. And as we, if we learned anything from the Emmy voters, it's that they always like to vote for the same shows over and over again. That's a good point. Is So, yeah, the, the way that all these award shows are scheduled always boggles my mind because I get confused as to which ones have already, you know, when each one has their respective schedules. So like breaking bad might not get nominated for one award show, but it could get nominated for another award show. I always find that very complicated. Well, here's the way to uncomplicate it of the period for Emmy uh, nominations or rather not nominations for eligibility comes to May. It ends in May. So if your show has a summer season, it won't be eligible till the next Emmy season. This is why Breaking Bad's final season gets another t- gets another go at the Apple, and I'm sure that was by design. Yeah, and I always get confused. It's like, okay, the Emmys can nominate what exactly? Okay, now the Golden Globes can nominate what exactly? They get all mixed up uh, in my head. But Golden Globes tend to even nominate shows while they're in the midst of their first seasons. Yeah, that's very strange. Didn't Brooklyn Nine Nine win a bunch of Golden Globes? It did this year, and it had it hasn't finished its first season. Yeah, I, I the whole awards show thing, I just find really kind of complicated and overdone. There will be certain nominees where I'm like, wait, that's nominated this year? What? Well, Golden Globes are the senator title of uh, award shows. <laughs> All certainly no substance. <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, True Detective does deserve... I, I think it deserves to be nominated alongside shows like Breaking Bad and, and, and other shows of that caliber. But again, once, but again, once you're up against the big guns of TV, it's no longer a guarantee that you're going to win. Well, right, right. And, you know, I, I love Breaking Bad as well, so I'm not sure if I would want True Detective to beat Breaking Bad when it comes down to awards, but I, I, I just hope that it gets the uh, recognition it deserves alongside shows of that caliber um getting back to this finale i feel like a lot of fans might be disappointed by the fact that this finale was so character driven it the ending does feel very thematically driven as opposed to plot driven the actual mystery and the plot i uh, of you know why these people were kidnapped what they were forced to do who else is part of the cult a lot of those details were left by the wayside, and so I think some people might be disappointed by that. Are you disappointed at all that they didn't clarify certain things about what Errol Childress was doing and just what all the details were? Yeah, I would have liked to have known more about the cult, but I mean, I understand that this was a character-driven series. If people were surprised that it was a character-driven finale, did you see the previous seven episodes? Yeah, it's kind of the way it's been from the start. I mean, this is the very first episode that we spent any time of length at all, all with the killer. I mean, until that, his point of view. Right. This is the first time that we we really, really broke away from Cole and Hart and their point of view for any significant amount of time. Um, and I think that that was a good choice. On the other hand, it does raise a few more questions than it answers. Like, I don't still... I still don't know what the deal was with his father, Ted Childress, and what what it all was going on with him. 
in the in the shed like was he dead was he dehydrated and barely alive what was well, going I'll on with that phrase pulp fiction for you ted is dead my friend <laughs> there was that shot when marty found him and it looked like maybe his mouth was sewn up or or something i, I was trying to figure out what is going on and why is Errol doing this? And they never explained that. And there's a part of me that's fine that they never explained it. It's just one of those weird details about this cult. We don't, I don't think we really need to know the motivations behind everything. At the same time, though, there is a part of me that feels like maybe everything that happens at the end would have been even more compelling if the motivations and the philosophy of Errol and the whole Tuttle clan had been more apparent. If, in a certain respect, this wasn't just a war between light and dark and between good and evil, if it was a war between different ideologies and, and worldviews, I think that could have been compelling. So I, I'm a little bit disappointed that they didn't clarify some of the, the motivations and, and the details of what was going on. Like, you have those parts where Errol is saying things like I'm about to make my ascension and he seems to think that he's going to be able to escape the cycle or escape time or or something. I wish that they had fleshed that out a little bit more and tied it in with kind of Cole and everything that he went through at the end regarding his quote-unquote conversion, I I guess you could call it. Now, they did loosely touch upon Reggie Ledoux in previous episodes and that Remember the the previous victim that Rust and Marty had saved was in an institution, and she mentioned that uh, the man with the scars was the worst one of them all. So we know he was connected to those to Reggie Ledoux and his brother, but we don't know specifically how because the finale does tend to point the finger at Ar- at Errol for the modern day murder and the Dora Lang murder in '95. Right, and it's still unclear how exactly Reggie was involved. Was he actually one of the killers, or was he just a middleman that kidnapped certain kids? You know, to what extent was was Tuttle and his whole family involved? So there are a lot of details we still don't know. And overall, I'm okay with that. I, I there is a part of me though that thinks they could have made some of that thematically relevant and and made that function not just as background and exposition, but but as some meteor material you know i was surprised they didn't go to audrey his um marty's daughter who i mean it very it it seemed like she had been abused herself because like the the display of dolls that she had in her room from the first episode is very reminiscent of that videotape that uh cole shows him later on yes we we had we got so many listeners from people saying what's up with audrey she had to have been abused she's involved somehow I wonder if a lot of people are going to be disappointed by the fact that they never really went back to that. And basically, I guess what we're supposed to take away from it is that Audrey was damaged by Marty and the fact that he wasn't there and he was bringing his work home with him, whether he realized it or not. I guess that's what we're supposed to infer from that. But yeah, it it does seem kind of weird that they would drop a lot of these hints of certain things that could happen and then just kind of leave them to the side. Well, I was, I was a little annoyed by the way they dropped certain plot points like that is red herrings never to be addressed again. But, you know, I mean, overall as overall series, I, I've certainly enjoyed the ride. Right. It's, it's definitely messy, but overall I, I agree with you. I think that it, it worked out for the best. I'm not sure how satisfying it would have been if they had, focused more on plot and actually focused more on making those seeds grow into really plot-relevant events. Uh, I kind of like the fact that they decided for this finale to just take a step back and focus on the essentials of these characters and these these themes. And I think that they, they did a good job of just kind of bringing it all together and making you think about how the stories we tell and this whole idea of light and dark, these aren't just things that we can distance ourselves from. These aren't just, you know, the, the light and dark here. It's not just the detectives versus the Yellow King. It's not just God versus the devil. It's there, There's light and dark inside uh, all of us. Um, and I like how one of the main messages that Cole really latches onto at the end is, you know, we have a choice. We, we can decide what we want to do 
this is a complete 180 for him because he used to talk a lot about, in the, at least in that first episode, about how we were programmed to do things and we were our existence was programmed a certain way. But now he's actually acknowledging we have a choice and uh, we can choose to be for the light or the dark. And, you know, that's a simple message, but I think it's a... Uh, in many ways, the simplest messages are often the most profound and the ones that I think people have trouble grasping in reality most of the time. Uh, it reminds me of one of the funniest jokes in the episode, which is uh, Marty's monologue about sentient meat, which eventually gets a retort from, uh, I'm sorry, it was Hart, that was Hart, it was uh, Cole who did the, the monologue, and then Hart retorted, what scented meat? Yeah, that whole idea that Cole just he, he, he sometimes he can't communicate very well, and Marty has trouble picking it up. I I love there was some such good comedy in this season for such a dark show. I'm really surprised that they managed to inject so much humor into it, and you really do have to give credit to Harrelson and McConaughey for pulling that off. Well, one of my favorite um, Hart and Cole moments is when they're talking to Charlie Wang at the beginning of I think episode five or six. They're tracking. They're trying to track down Reggie Ledoux, and he t- and the guy's telling him how Reggie Ledoux would always say far out things. And Hart said, "Hmm, I don't know how you could have lived with that guy just constantly saying insane things." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he was staring at Mar- at, at, at Cole while he was saying that too. And then uh, there was that moment last episode where they went to see the the woman, the former housekeeper of Tuttle. And, you know, then afterwards her daughter was like, sorry, you know, she just starts, she's, uh, she's delusional and she starts saying this crazy stuff that no one understands. And then Cole has some remark like, oh, well, I got it. <laughs> I understood everything she was saying. Well, there was another funny moment there, too, because that woman was upset at, at Marty and uh, Cole and Rust for not being who they said they were. So uh, she opens for them to take, you know, makes a motion of her hand for them to pay her. And uh, Marty takes out some money and gives her some money. And she's, like, holding out hand, hand again, and, and Russ is like, yeah, go ahead and pay her again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, the last thing I want to ask you about, Blair, what do you make of this whole thing that they had in the uh, the end of last week's episode and that ran into the beginning of this week's episode? Everything with Steve Garacci, the deputy, and making him watch the tape, and they didn't actually hook him up to jumper cables this episode like they said they might do. What did you make of everything with, with him? Because they kind of ended last week's episode on a cliffhanger, um, as they've done a few times. They, they, they kind of end on these moments that seem like they're going to be really, really important, and then they maybe only take up a scene or two the following week. Well, I served his purpose in that he wasn't necessarily part of the overall conspiracy, but he was willing to let himself be overridden on that report and kind of follow the chain of command. And we, we saw the transformative work again. You know, the king in yellow play is meant to induce madness. And once again, that videotape that Rust recovered from Tuttle's house did the same thing on Steve Garacci, or however the hell you pronounce his last name. When he sees it, he screams. I love how... He just tries to distance himself from the whole thing, and he's just, you know, says, you know, I was acting on orders. It's the chain of command. It's the chain of command. It's the chain of command. And he points the finger at all of these other people and all these institutions that he feels pressured him and and forced him to do this. And I love how that comes back later again when Cole is just like, no, you have a choice. You, regardless of all these different forces that are out in the universe and these wars between light and dark, we can all make our own uh, choices. Um, So I love how the show acknowledges that there are institutional forces out there pressuring us and and all these different attitudes and worldviews and ideas that we have to deal with. Yet at the end of the day, we do have our own agency. Now, there was another funny moment with uh, Rust threatening uh, Steve with a sniper contract and after he demonstrates it, he says, did I strike you as a talker or a doer? Right. And then he, does, he says something like, look high him, fat ass, <laughs> as he's getting in the car, which was just such a perfect little goofy line. I, I, I want to see more. I want to find out more about this guy that owns Russ Bar, this sniper, this buddy he's known Bob. for a while now. He's such a cool, mysterious character. I think his name is Bob, I think. Something like that. 
Yeah. It, I kind of wish that they had done a little bit more with him because he showed up in these last couple episodes and we didn't really know a lot about him. And then suddenly in this episode, he's got a sniper rifle. He's, it seems like, you know, Russ really trusts him. He's the guy that's going to mail out everything to the news stations if necessary. And he did. That was one of the things that came out in the episode is he did make that mailing because Rust was in a coma. Right. And I, I feel like this guy became such an essential part of the story, yet I barely even know his name. And, well, he and didn't really speak that much in the story either. I mean, he is the guy like Rust trusts him enough that like he goes over the plan of Marty in front of Bob. Right. And he only vaguely explains to Marty who Bob is. One of the other things I really liked about the episode is the way the media got their hands on the story and they kind of changed the narrative. So instead of a washed up former washed up former cops investigating a story, they called them private investigators. Although I think only Marty was technically a, a licensed private investigator. Right. It still sounds better than saying a private investigator and his washed up bartender ex cop friend. <laughs> yeah, and then at the end when Marty gives him that pack of cigarettes. I was thinking about that, and I was, I was wondering what that means. Does that mean that this new alcoholic, Cole, is, uh, he won't be making an appearance anymore? The Cole's going to go back to smoking as his drug of choice? I don't know if he's going to give up alcohol, because I think he actually enjoys it quite a bit. Well, right, but, but I got the impression that maybe we're seeing a return of... The the 1995 version of coal, mate. The coal that man, is, that that man is long gone. I mean, it's basically any coal that you get from this point is going to be the one who's, who has to build on what he came to realize at the end of the episode in terms of his optimistic moment. But you're never going to get that coal from 1995 back. That guy's gone. Well, right. In terms of his worldview, he's definitely changed. But I also got the the feeling that okay, maybe he's going to give up alcohol like he was trying to do in, in 1995. I don't know. He wasn't, he wasn't saying, Marty, take me to the nearest AA meeting. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe he will still be a functioning alcoholic and still be making little uh, figurines out of his beer cans. <laughs> like, Marty, I'm ready to acknowledge the higher power. Take me to a meeting. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's move on to some listener feedback and emails. We got a couple emails from people. Uh, First off, we got an email from Thomas. Thomas just wrote in real quickly to say he has not cried this much since he saw the Lost finale. So Thomas was very, very moved by the True Detective finale. Did you get a little misty-eyed there at the end, Blair? Did I cry? No, I didn't cry, though I guess technically... Rust is the variable, if you want to use the lost analogy. Right, right. I, I thought that the ending was very moving. I didn't cry, but I did get a little misty-eyed there at the end when Rust is talking about how he just was surrounded by love and, and there was something there beneath the darkness. I thought that it was really, really uh, emotionally moving. Speaking of lost, do you feel like a lot of people approached True Detective like lost in the sense that as you mentioned they thought it was a puzzle that they had to solve well i think people are looking for that in a tv show and there hasn't been one to really deliver that experience to them but yes people always want a puzzle to solve and this is why when abc keeps trying to recreate lost on the network it's always failed because they're going at it from the wrong angle they're trying to create the mystery without creating the characters that made the mystery interesting Right. I actually, I can totally see the Lost comparison here with with True Detective. I feel like a lot of people were looking for all these clues. They were picking out little details in the background of the scenes and just little, little visuals that would seem to hint at a larger mystery and a larger puzzle. I think that if the show had really, really hammered home that idea of a mystery, if that had been front and center, like, hey, you need to be paying attention to every little detail so you can put it all together i think that if you were approaching true detective that way then the finale would be disappointing much like honestly i found the lost final season to be disappointing final season final episode final season i i hated every single episode of the final season of lost. wow it i absolutely loathed it i i thought it was just uh, it, it totally rubbed me the wrong way every, every single episode of season six so i i think the fact that there were only eight episodes of true detective 
to really dive into and to set up that mystery. I think that that, that made it okay when at the end they decided to be like, hey, this is all about the characters and the themes anyway. I think with a show like Lost, when you've dragged it out over five seasons and your whole big thing is what are all these, what, what are the answers to all these questions? There's so many mysteries you have to solve. I think then at the end, if you're just like, oh no, it was actually about the characters the whole time, that's kind of a cheat. But it, I was totally willing to, to go with it for True Detective. Well, True Detective also wasn't around long enough to wear out its welcome. Right. Right. And it does mean that, you know, next season we will, from what I understand, we'll have something completely different. So... Although, although it would be hilarious if A, it deals with the Tuttle mystery again, and B, have the same clues detectives <laughs> doing the uh, interrogations again. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's uh, What are the detectives' names? Papania and Gilbo, I think, are their names. Yeah, they're back again. That would be really, really strange. I don't think they can do the Tuttle mystery again. I think I think if they, if he wanted to... They could touch upon the Tuttle mystery, but it reminds me of American Horror Story Season 1, where they left that show, or rather that season, on a very interesting note. And do you, do you want me to say this or not? Or, like, or do, you, do you care for like a, about a three-year-old American Horror Story spoiler? Well, I, I saw Season 1 of American Horror Story, and I did not like it, so I haven't watched the other two seasons. There was, there was let's just say that Jessica Lange's character was in a very interesting place at the end of that season, and I would have liked to have seen her again and explore what would happen after, at that point, but they completely went away with that in the second season when they changed the premise of the show on a yearly basis, so that there would, there would be no follow-up. I wouldn't mind if we do get some follow-up on the Tuttle case at some point in the life of True Detective. We don't have to, but it'd be interesting. I think it would be interesting, and I think that you know there would be, there, there's certainly opportunities for them to maybe fill in some of the gaps that certain viewers might be wondering about uh, related to the Tuttle murderers and what the motivations were and what what the whole deal was with the Yellow King and, and all of that. There's certainly opportunities for them to touch on that again, but there is a part of me that kind of hopes they just start completely from square one and build up something completely new. I think that's the approach that he's going to take. Incidentally, did you guys talk about the True Detective Season 2 meme on on Twitter? We mentioned it briefly, I think, but I honestly haven't been keeping up with it. Is that just where people are posting the two actors that they hope to see in True Detective Season 2 and hashtagging it True Detective Season 2? Yeah, a lot of times they pick the most ridiculous possibilities, and it's it's very funny. Do you have any favorites? Uh, I can't remember any off the top of my head. I just got, I just got a kick out of that, that particular theme, though. Right. It will be interesting to see who they cast. And whether or not the, the the people have the same chemistry as McConaughey and Harrelson, because honestly, I'm not sure how they're going to live up to these two performances. They were so spectacular. I think HBO and the series creator are going to go after movie stars again. They're, they're going to go after some people who haven't really done TV before and pitch them the idea of being, okay, you get to have the showcase that McConaughey and Harrelson had for the last two months. Right, and I think the fact that the show has been a huge success and does have such a following, that's that could help them nail down some pretty big leads. Now, it's also been suggested that because McConaughey had a weekly TV series, it helped out his Oscar chances this year. Maybe. I, I, it's possible that Oscar voters were thinking about True Detective when they voted for the Academy Awards this year. That that could have been a factor. You're right. Well, I I can tell you that it was, like, True Detective became very omnipresent, especially in the last weeks of the Oscar campaign. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why, why some, you could get some pretty big actors to sign on board for, uh, for season two. So we'll just have to wait and see. I really hope that they switch things up. I want to see, like, two female detectives. I want to see I, – I just want them to shake it up. A bit. I think there's a lot of opportunities to really do something different in season two. Do you happen to remember if Helen Hunt won Best Actress for For Good As It Gets? I cannot remember. Uh, because that's the only other time I can think of, of, of an actor or an actress winning an Oscar while they have a hit TV show on the air. Yeah, yeah, I can't... Uh, you're, I'd have to look that up. I can't remember if she won or not. But as we move into the future, and I'm sure we, we might be talking about this a little bit more next week uh, when we do our wrap-up episode, I, I think as 
you know, the, the ways in which people consume media and entertainment change, I think we're going to see that dividing line between television and film dissipate even further. So I think it might start, we, in the future, it might be more and more common to start seeing pretty well-known actors pop up on TV shows and for TV actors to pop up in film just because the way technology is, is moving forward and the way we, we can, uh, people are accessing things online and in and, and different ways, I, th- I think that's where we might be headed. Well, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned that True Detective crashed HBO Go last night. Yeah, it did. Uh, that, I, I was kind of wondering, okay, if you watch HBO Live, what if you went to watch the True Detective finale and all you had gotten was the uh, HBO Go loading bar on live TV? What if that was the True Detective finale? What if time was indeed a flat circle? <laughs> I would more cruel. You go to watch the finale and it starts playing the first episode again for you. <laughs> oh, that would have been perfect. That would have been perfect. I, I, as upset as people would have been, would have been by that. I also think a lot of fans would have been like, okay, that was kind of cool. <laughs> now, I've looked this up. Helen Hunt did win the Academy Awards for Best Actress, so she, she's probably the first person to have won a major Oscar well, at the same time, appearing on a TV show that was also a hit. All right. Once it happens again, I'm gonna. I'm sensing a trend. Cue a million think pieces about what actors need to uh, do TV shows to boost their awards chances. And apparently, she also won the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy. Huh. Okay. I didn't know that. So she is. She's one of the rare Emmy and Oscar winners. And I suspect uh, Matthew McConaughey will be also be one of the few to have that honor. Will McConaughey get his EGOT? That's that's what I want to know. What is EGOT? That's Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Ah, well, he's going to have to learn how to sing first. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he doesn't he play the bongos? No, well, he could do it. I think he I think he does. I'm not sure if he's done any Broadway. Um, though, though to, if he if he gets the Oscar and the Emmy in the same year, that I think is very unique. All right. Well, we got uh, an email from big fan of the podcast, uh, Floyd who wrote in, and here's what he had to say about the finale. He says, uh, At the end of the day, the showrunners decided to emphasize the characters more than the crime, so maybe we were never supposed to delve into the details. For Pizzolatto, maybe the crime was just a means to an end, the end in this case being the exploration of two very different men and their relationship. Take the whole Garachi thing, for example. That spanned over two episodes, all for what exactly? Just so he can say, I don't know anything, I was just following orders? Or maybe it was just a tool to show that Marty and Rust are fully committed to solving this crime and to each other as partners and friends, even to the extent of putting themselves and their freedom at risk by kidnapping a sheriff at gunpoint. At the end of that kidnapping, we haven't learned much about the crime, but we've learned quite a bit more about our heroes. So maybe that was the whole point of the narrative to begin with. If that's so, little details like where did Ginger go and who were the other masked men in the video are backburner details for Pizzolatto, who is focusing on the main story in his mind. Who are these two guys we're writing along with? Even with that being said, I thought it got a little sloppy in the end. I mean, you've woven this detailed crime drama, uh, historical drama, literary referenced maze that we're all running around through, and then to find out it's not a maze at all, just a straight line to the end, was a little let down, but I still loved the ride. Well, he said, I think, in the end, they decided it was all about characters. No, it was always about the characters. Always. This is one of the reasons why we didn't know who the killer was until the end of last week's episode. They deliberately kept that information from us to keep the focus on Marty and Col- uh, rather on Marty and Rust. Right. I think those first three episodes in particular, yes, while there is a lot of stuff about them just knocking on doors, trying to solve the case, most of it really is just about their relationship and who they are as people and everything with with Maggie and how they view each other and their different conflicts. I definitely think that this was a show that prioritized themes and characters over plot. And if you went into the show and into this finale, you know, thinking that, I think you were probably satisfied overall. Uh, but what what else? Did you have anything else you wanted to say about that email? Oh, it was so long, I actually forgot everything. <laughs> well, well, he was... Uh, well, I was well. You were reading. I thought of something, but now, now that uh, two minutes have passed, it's gone out of my brain like memory. <laughs> I come around in the circle. I'm sure I'll remember again. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, Floyd's been one of our most dedicated listeners, and he always sends us pretty lengthy emails. So thanks for that email, Floyd. Sorry you were let down by the finale, but uh, hey, maybe you'll be more satisfied by season two. All right, Blair, is there anything else you would like to say about the season finale of True Detective? I think I've said my piece. Oh, we got it. We got one email uh, a week ago that we forgot to discuss on the show. Someone wrote in and pointed out that throughout the series, Cole repeatedly checks his pulse at certain times throughout the show. And, pe- and this listener was wondering why we thought that might be. I never picked up on that. Did you pick up on that? No, that's something I'd have to keep an eye out for. And incidentally, I do actually want to go back and watch the episodes to see if Nick uh, had played fair with us in terms of the mystery. Did he give us enough clues to guess that the gardener who appeared in 1995 would go on to be the the man with the green ears and the facial scars, Errol? I do want to find out if we actually had that information to have been able to reasonably have been able to get, make that guess. Well, well actually, uh, Floyd emailed us a few days before last week's episode with screen caps of Errol on his tractor back in 1995 on his lawnmower and did point out to us that, hey, this guy has facial scarring, so maybe he is the killer. So there were a few listeners and a few fans of True Detective that I think did pick up on that and did think that... Uh, that he was involved. On the other hand, though, Floyd also emailed us right before the finale, like minutes before the finale aired, and with a screen cap of the first guy that Cole interrogates in, I think, the first or second episode, the guy who can't leave a crime scene without masturbating <laughs> everywhere, and, and that guy had scars on his face, too. So I get the feeling maybe Nick Pizzolatto was kind of dropping little hints and, and little bits of foreshadowing that could have been red herrings or maybe they were all intentional just to make us see that hey maybe it is errol after all i don't know there are no red herrings on true detective they're all yellow <laughs> that's a good point they're all yellow herrings <laughs> all right well i think that'll wrap it up for this episode uh, we'd love to get your feedback on the show don't forget you can call us at 336-793-2509 and you can email us at detect this at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com We'll be back next week with our season wrap-up episode with a, with a couple special guests, so be sure to tune in to that. Uh, be sure to subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like this episode, please write us a review. That helps us out a lot. Uh, you can donate to us through the website. We really appreciate all your support. Uh, you can also visit our affiliates, including Amazon. Anything you purchase through our partners, if you use filmgeekradio.com to get there, we will get a small cut of whatever you purchase, so you can buy something for yourself and help us out at the same time. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including Cinema Fix, The Thin Place, and The Agents of Shieldcast. Blair, thanks for coming on. Where can people find you online? Well, you can find me at CraveOnline.com, where I'm the TV channel editor. I also do the occasional podcast there called The Idiot Box, in which you've joined me the last two episodes. Yeah, I've been on there a couple times. That That's a lot of fun. Um, are you on Twitter? How else can people get in touch with you? Oh, I am also on Twitter at Blair Marnell, so it's really difficult to find, I'm sure. Well, you can find some of my writing at MovieMezzanine.com and Patheos.com. I'm also covering Season 2 of Hannibal over at CraveOnline.com, uh, so be sure to find those reviews there. And you can follow me on Twitter at WriterAndrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and we can keep talking about True Detective. I want to know, what did you think of the finale? Message me, let me know, we can keep talking about it. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. Charlie Nash will be with us again next week. And we ain't going to get them all. That ain't what kind of world it is. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.